In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the day the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was an evening and there was a morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for the signs for the seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night in the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So, yes, if you haven't turned there yet, turn to page one in your Bibles. We're going back to the beginning and we're walking through Genesis and... Uh, for those of you that have been around a while, you know that we did Acts in uh, 93 sermons, in a little over two years, and if you are like really keeping track, you know there's like 50 chapters in Genesis, so we'll be here the rest of our lives, and um, that'll be fun. No, actually, we're going we're gonna to take a different approach to this. It'll be about 44, 45 sermons or something. I don't know if you know Nicole uh, Bowder. Nicole's back there. She's one of the... Uh, there's several women walking around with infants and babies around our church because, well, church growth strategies. And, um, but Nicole does a lot of the design, most of the design that you see at our church, she does. She's very gifted in that. She writes the weekly emails uh, that kind of recaps the sermon, does an amazing job of that. She created a page uh, that you can see on our website, basically outlines the whole Genesis uh, series. We're going to break this 
the whole book and the five mini-series. And so you can kind of see a roadmap for where we're going to be walking through the book of Genesis. But we start with creation. We start with the story of God creating the earth. And when you, when you talk about creation, there's questions that immediately come to mind. Uh, they've come to mind for centuries. They've uh, been in front of us, like uh, questions that we want answers to. The questions just naturally come out of the story. And, and with the rise of modern science and uh, let's just be honest, the aggressiveness of uh, the scientific world and this, this perception that exists that the Bible and science don't, don't exist together, like they're in, a, in contrast with each other, that those questions are even more prevalent. Those questions are probably on all of our minds in some way as we approach the, the subject, the idea of creation. Like those questions are just dominating in our culture. There's what, what, what happened here? And so the questions that we typically, I think, come to this uh, story, this creation story, and this idea of creation, the questions that we typically come to it with are the when and the how and the what about questions, aren't they? It's the when questions. When did this happen? Is the earth old or is the earth young? Uh, if, if you take that real literal picture of the Bible that God created the earth in six days and then that began the history, and, and so if you just look through genealogies and you look through the stories and you look through the time periods, you know that the earth's like biblically, that, that would look like the earth is about 8,000, 10,000 years old, maybe as much as 15,000 years old. That's a young earth theory. And then science will tell us through uh, fossils and carbon dating, all these different things. The earth may be millions, maybe even billions of years old. So what is it? You know, when did this happen? Was this in the beginning? When, when did that take place? That's, the when question is so prevalent when you start talking about creation. The how question, how did this happen? Was there a big bang and then this all accidentally happened? Like this is all kind of just, there was some explosion or something that happened in the cosmos and then all of a sudden all of this became into existence? Like, how did this happen? Was there, what, is it, what about the evolution? You know, you move into the what about questions. What about evolution? Like, that is such a prevalent idea in our culture, and our kids are going to school, and they're getting that, like, pretty, pretty much force-fed to them, this idea of evolution. So is, did, did God use evolution? Was there, is there a, a, a way to believe that evolution was a part of God's plan for how he created and then grew the world into what it is today. There's all these what about questions. What about those dinosaurs, right? Like, you've been to Glen Rose, haven't you? You've seen the footprints. And you go, well, does the Bible mention dinosaurs? Like, what about the dinosaurs? Is the Bible silent on that? And I don't know if the Bible mentions dinosaurs or not, but I also don't have any idea what the beast in Job 40 and Job 41 are. Kids, if you're in the service and you want to find dinosaurs in the Bible, that might be dinosaurs in the Bible. Look at Job chapter 40. Look at Job chapter 41. Maybe draw me a picture of those beasts. I'd like to see what you could do with that. Like that's, what about this and what about that? And the Bible, like when you talk about creation, there's all these kinds of questions, the when, the how, the what about questions. And, and, and here's what we need to do. We need to acknowledge up front that the Bible doesn't necessarily answer all those questions. The Bible doesn't tell us the specifics of when. It doesn't tell us the specifics of how. Uh, it doesn't answer some of the questions that science has brought to the surface or just our own minds and our imagination brought to the surface. It just doesn't answer some of those questions. And, and what that means is that on some of these things, we have to be okay with mystery. We have to be okay with not knowing some of these things. We, we just have to be. And it's just a reminder, like, you, 
you can't follow God without faith. Like, that's impossible, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to follow him. And faith is this assurance of things hoped for. It's this confidence in things that are not seen. And so we can't know everything. We can't understand everything completely. We can't see everything. And so there's a lot of this creation story that you, I think that you can be a believer in Christ and maybe believe in this part of it or believe in this part of it or adhere to some of these other parts of it that are unknown and unanswered in our Bible. I think that there's lots of room for that as long as we foundationally understand that this is God's work behind all of it and that's going to require some faith. But I think it's good to press in. I think these questions are important. They're not questions that we should ignore. Uh, the whole young earth, old earth is a great question to research and to dive into and to consider and to try to maybe wrestle with this idea like what what do we think really it is and come to a belief come to a place where we we may land we don't have to land hard on it but we can land somewhere because of the evidence and because of things that we understand and don't throw faith out of it like when when I've for most of my adult life I think that when it came to young earth versus old earth and what science tells us in the literal translation of the Bible like I think that I've just led my reproach with faith. And, and here's what I mean by that. I just, don't you think it might be possible for God to create the world 10,000 years ago, but create the world to where it looks really old? Isn't that possible that God would have maybe done that? Like that just to add mystery into the universe, that he may have created a world that uh, was brand new, but it looked old? I mean, go with me. Adam was created by God, what the Bible teaches us, and that day that God breathed life into his nostrils and he came alive and he was, he was a man, how old was he? Kids, how old was Adam the day that God created him? Anybody? Scared? Do you want to say Jesus? I understand. <laughs> he was one day old. Did he look one day old? I don't think so. I don't think he was an eight-pound, seven-ounce Adam rolling around the garden trying to name the animals. I don't think that's what was happening right there. Like, I think he was probably maybe 30-something, maybe 25, 27. I mean, he, he, he was one day old, but he looked really old. So good. couldn't God have, I mean, he did that once. Like, couldn't God have created a world that was brand new, but it looked old? And to the scientific mind, to our eye, to our studying, to layers of earth and stuff, does it, couldn't it look old? I, Kai Martin is one of our pastors and one of our elders, and uh, you, you guys know him. He, he, some people might say that there's no end to Kai's talent. Some people might say that. They're probably wrong, but they might say that. But Kai, like he preaches for us. He's gifted as a preacher. He leads our church as one of our pastors. He's, he works with me at I Go Global. He's been doing that since he was in college. And our students were at LaunchBox over spring break, which is a, mission, a refugee mission camp, and they were serving refugees in Fort Worth. And that's really one of Kai's main responsibilities. He works on LaunchBox with Jamie Lee, uh, who's Nick's wife that also works at IGO, and, uh, but he leads that, like that's his deal. And some small circles that are pretty insignificant, he's known as the mayor of Igoja. Uh, he's got so many different talents and so many different abilities. And I don't know if you know this about Kai, but he, he also owns a side business because that's so popular in our culture today. Everybody has a side hustle. And he has a, a barn, I don't know what you call it, shop, whatever, I call it a barn in the back of his house, and he, he runs a business called Drakestone Designs. And Drakestone Designs makes decorative items such as this, and uh, they, they sell them all over the place. I mean, they sell them on like Amazon, Wayfair, 
Um, they sell them on Etsy. I bet you could find them on the black market. I bet you could. So, um, and one, one huge branch of this business that Kai runs is taking reclaimed wood. And so there's a barn somewhere out in somebody's field, and they finally decided this barn's been here too long. It's fallen down. They tear it down. Kai's company will go in and buy the wood from that barn, and they will take that reclaimed wood. You know what this looks like, right? And they will make something like this. And then they'll, they'll sell it. And so I asked Kai to bring me one of these things because I think this kind of helps us with this possibility, right? Like, I don't know when, when you got, your guys made this. It may have been this week, right? It could have been yesterday. I mean, it's, it's, it's a brand new creation of Drake Stone Designs. But if you start looking at this, it looks really old. It's, it's supposed to be looking old. In fact, that's all the rage now. It's such a genius idea I wish I'd have thought of to distress everything and then sell it for more. Like take something new and beat it up, sell it for more because it looks really old. Like, but this is reclaimed wood. It looks really, really old, but it's, it's a brand new creation. And so couldn't, couldn't God, couldn't he have made the world uh, when the Bible says, like maybe indicates that it was maybe eight, 10,000 years ago, but it looks really old because he's just that big of a God. Now these illustrations that we use sometimes, they're, they help us a little bit understand a little bit further, I hope. But they break down. Um, every illustration breaks down at some point, it seems. And this illustration breaks down because uh, Kai found an old barn or bought some wood from an old barn, and he used it for uh, that purpose to make a new creation, but it was just materials that he had. The Bible tells us that God made everything out of nothing. It's just a, a key theological truth about creation, that God, he didn't go... Uh, reclaim some material from a falling apart planet somewhere. <laughs> he didn't go to Solar System Depot and get a bunch of materials to uh, hammer it all together. Like God just speaks these things into existence. But couldn't he have made something new that looked old? I mean, it was, it's going to require faith on our part either way. This week as I was studying, I came across a, uh, an idea called historical creation that I just wasn't familiar with, and I, it was so interesting to me because in historical creation, and they call it that because it was really what was taught in Jewish circles before the rise of modern, modern science. It was what the rabbis would have taught their people, and it was before we started getting threatened by science and pushed away from science, but historical creation teaches based on the Hebrew language, the original language of Genesis chapter one, that this in the beginning, that, that phrase literally means at an unspecified amount of time uh, and an, an inexact point in time. Just think about it for just a second. We're getting down the weeds a little bit, but think about it. Like, in the beginning means an unspecified amount of time and an inexact point in time. So we don't know. And then the next phrase, created the heavens and the earth, literally means earth and sky or everything in between. That God made everything. And what does it say in Genesis 1-1? Literal translation is that he made everything, the universe and everything, at an inexact point in time and for an unspecified amount of time. And then in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. That the best translation, the most literal translation of that is that it was uninhabited. And historical creation teaches that God at some time in history made everything, inexact point in time, unspecified amount of time. And then in verse 2, God began to take what he had made way back then and he began to prepare it to put mankind on it. So just think about that. That's a translation of Genesis 1 
that is not against what we think and hear about in science. That maybe the earth was created a billion years ago. It's time is nothing to God. And then in six days, he stepped in and made it, prepared it for putting man on it to execute his plan. Just There's all kinds of theories. There's all kinds of possibilities here. And, and I think that it's, it's good for us to lean in. It's good for us to wrestle with it. It's good for us to research it. You ought to be researching it. That historical creation, if you want to look at more of that, Emily uh, Martin, who runs our social media, we're talking about putting some of these things in front of you as we're going through Genesis, some resources where you can go a little deeper in this process. And you can look at that book. It's called Genesis Unbound by a guy named John Stalehammer. Um, there's an article that we'll link to on Desiring God where it kind of explains that whole book and that whole concept. And we're going to continually put resources in front of us because we want to be people that don't just put our head in the sand and say, we don't know how this happened. We don't want to know. We want legs with our faith. We want, some, we want some muscle there that gives us reason to believe. Like, here's what we need. We need people that have intellectual answers for these questions. We need people, we, students, listen to me. We need, some of you are good at science and some of you are allergic to it. I get that. But those of you who are good at it, we need, we need Christians to go into the field of science and do such an amazing job as a scientist that you earn the right to speak for God in the world of science. We need that in our culture. I mean, we need that in every, every phase of life. Like, ministry and missions in our culture looks like being the best that you can be at your job and earning the right to speak for God there. And we need, we need students, we need the next generation to go into the field of science and be so hardworking and so diligent at it and so good at it that you earn the right to speak about faith and show that the Bible doesn't necessarily contradict those things. So these are the questions, the when, the how, the what about questions that we want to know, we want to talk about, we want to answer. Here's the problem. The Bible doesn't really answer those questions. Genesis chapter 1 doesn't give us those answers. It doesn't talk about specifically the when. It doesn't talk about specifically the how. Like Generally, it says God spoke, but how? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't answer some of these questions. It doesn't, all the whatabouts that we could line up, it doesn't give us all those answers. And so here's what we have to do as people of God. We have to look at Genesis 1 and we have to ask the right questions. We have to say, what is, what is this Genesis 1 teaching us? If it's not answering those questions, then what question is it teaching us? And just so you'll know, like at, at Crosspoint, we value this thing we call it expository preaching. And there's lots of ways that you can define and explain expository preaching. But maybe the simplest way that you can explain it to anyone is to say this, that the point of the text becomes the point of the sermon. Expository preaching, that's, that's basically what it is. So you can look at that verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph or chapter by chapter, but here's the deal. The point of the text, the point of Genesis 1 becomes the point of the sermon. The main point here is the main point here because expository preaching is just me standing up here trying to expose and explain what God's Word says. And so if Genesis 1 doesn't answer those questions, when, what, how, what about, when, how, and what about, then what is it answering? And here's how you determine that. This is a Bible study lesson for all of us. You determine that by asking this question. What did the author intend for his readers, his listeners, to learn 
What was he trying to communicate? Now, this is the book of Genesis. It's widely accepted that Moses was a writer of the book of Genesis. And so here's the question. When Moses wrote Genesis 1, what was he trying to communicate? What was he trying to teach? What was he trying to share with the people of Israel, God's people of Israel? What was he trying to communicate? What's the main point of Genesis chapter 1? And here it is. Get ready. God created the world. That's it. That's what Moses is trying to tell the people of Israel. Hey, God made all this. God's a creator. Moses, his agenda is not to answer the when and the how and the what about. He's trying to say God made the world. Why? Because think about the people of Israel. Think about their history. What were they always doing? They were always tempted to walk away from worshiping God and worship a false god and idol. Always, throughout the Old Testament, that's what we see of the people of Israel. That's their temptation they continually give into. Even when Moses had led them out of Egypt and he was up on the mountain meeting with God, they were like, where'd he go? We don't know. Let's make a golden calf and let's start worshiping it. This is the people of Israel. This is what they did. God gave them the promised land. He moved them in with Joshua and they still continually stopped worshiping God to worship the gods of the nations to the idols that were around them. And so here's what Moses is saying. No, God, our God, the one true God is the creator God. He wants his audience to remember that and to know that, that our God, this is how we know he's the one true God because he's the creator God. The Bible tells us this over and over. Psalm 96 verses four and five. Psalm 96 is a great declaration of the greatness of God. Verses four and five say it this way. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples or the nations are worthless idols. And look at this. But the Lord made the heavens. All these other gods are worthless. They're idols. They're fake. They're not real gods. How do you know it? Because our God created the earth. Our God created the universe. Our God created everything. He's the creator God. So Moses is trying to explain to us that God, the God of Israel, Jehovah God, Yahweh, he's the creator God. So stop wandering away from him. He's the only God that we should worship. He's the only God that we should serve. He's the only God that we should follow because he's the creator God. And so as you walk through Genesis chapter 1 with that understanding that this is what Moses was trying to communicate, it, it plays out in a couple different specifics. That number one, God is eternal. I mean, that's, that's a foundational truth that we need to get out of Genesis chapter 1, that in the beginning, whenever that was, God was there. That theologically, we need to grab a hold of that, as big of an idea as it is, as hard it is to get our mind around it. We can't really fully, but we need to at least embrace that truth that God has always existed. He's eternal. He's the creator because when nothing existed, he was already here. And he's the one who created. He's the one that brought everything to, into existence. So God is eternal, never had a beginning. Everything else, creation had a beginning, but God did not. He's always been, and he always will be. And the second thing I think that you see in this passage, in this chapter, is that God is all-powerful. He created the world by speaking. You saw it as you were following along with Janie as she was reading. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let this happen. And God said, let this happen. God is so powerful. He's eternal. He's always been here. And when he decided to create the universe, he decided to create the world, he just spoke and it happened. 
This is the God that Moses is calling us to worship. This is the God that calling us back to. Remember, this is the God we worship. This is the God we follow. This is the God we believe in. Why? Because he's a creator God. He's eternal. He's always been here and he always will be. And he just spoke these things into existence. God created the world. That's the main point of the text. That's the main point of Genesis chapter 1. And however that happened, there's a lot of different ways that could play out, but that is what we need to embrace. And so here's what happens. When we embrace that truth, okay, I don't know exactly how he did it. I don't know exactly when he did it. And I don't have a bunch of answers to the what about questions, but I know God made it. I know God created it. When we embrace that truth, it leads us to what I would say is the most important question we can ask of Genesis chapter 1. And that question is why? If I believe God created everything, then here's what I want to know. Why did he do it? Why did God create everything? And so when you ask the right question, which that's the most important question, the Bible gives us a very, very clear answer all the way through it. And here's the answer. God created the world for his glory. Why did God make all this? God created the world to put his glory on display to demonstrate his greatness. God created the world for his glory. I want you to see a couple passages here. Isaiah 43, 7 is talking about him creating people. Uh, Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created, why? For my glory, whom I formed and made. Creation, he, he creates you and he creates me, he creates people for his glory. That's ultimate with God. Everything he does is ultimately for his glory. So much so that all of creation gives testimony to God's glory. Psalm, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's why when, like, you go out and see beautiful nature, right? You see the mountains, you see the ocean, you see... Uh, a beautiful river, you see beautiful scenery. Some of you can even go to the panhandle of Texas and call it beautiful. Like you see beauty in creation and it, it's supposed to point you back to a creator. It's voice, supposed to remind you that God made this and he's putting his glory on display. And so we get real bogged down in some of the questions that don't really matter sometimes, don't we? Like, <laughs> if this universe is as big as we say it is and we think it is, and we don't even know, right? We can't even figure out how, the, if, we don't even know if there's an end to it. It may be infinite. And there's so many solar systems and so many galaxies on top of that. And we're just this little dot in the midst of this universe. There's more stars than we can really count. If it's really that big, then here's what we do. We ask the question, are we really the only life form out here? Like, would it be this big, this universe be this big and not have some other life form? We're the only life form in this giant universe. And you can spend a lot of time chasing, chasing that rabbit. You can drive to Roswell, New Mexico. And I was doing an event there one time, so I had to go to the UFO Alien Museum. And just so you know, you want to go to that museum, it's only $2 to get in. And if you don't have cash and you only have credit, it's free. Um, that's a true story. That happened to me. I went into that museum, and there's, there's not one artifact in the whole place. They don't have any evidence. They got some stories, and they even typed them up. And they got some scenes from movies and some crazy ideas. But that's the question. Man, the universe is so big. Surely we're not the only life form out here. There must be something else. Here's the problem with that. The universe is not about us. The universe is about God. 
Why did God create the universe? If you can stop thinking about you and me, and that's hard for us sometimes, and think about God and what he's putting on display, his glory, like you can say, man, the universe is here to declare the glory of God, and it's that big that we can't even measure it, and it fits in his back pocket like you put your cell phone. Like that's how big our God is. That's how glorious our God is, that the universe is just something he spoke into existence, and he can pick it up and take it somewhere else if he wants to. The universe is displaying the glory of God, putting God's glory uh, on display for all of creation. God created the world for his glory. And so when you get that idea, when you, when you understand that idea, here's what it does. It breaks down, breaks out into some truths that really we can grab a hold of. Here's the first one. God created the world as an act of freedom. God created the world as an act of freedom. Out of, out of his free will, he decided to create the world. Why is that important? Because it, it helps us to remember that God didn't need to create the world. When I say that God created the world to display his glory for his glory, it's not this. It's not that he needed a bunch of people here to glorify him so that he could be glorified, so he could be glorious. No, no, no. God was already glorious. His glory was already complete. He created the world to display that glory so that we could recognize that glory, but he didn't need that. He didn't, he didn't need to create in order for his glory to be seen. Like his, his glory is always there eternally. And so God created the world as an act of freedom. That means that God wasn't needy. He wasn't lonely. Like the Bible teaches that God is a Trinitarian God, that he's one God in three persons. And in the person of the Trinity, in the work of the Trinity, that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that there's perfect harmony, perfect community, and perfect love between them. So God wasn't lonely. He wasn't wringing his hands going, I don't know what to do. He didn't need to create. He chose to create. Out of his freedom, out of his free will, he chose to create us. He didn't need us. Heaven was truly complete without us, but yet still he sent Jesus. He, he created the world. He did all this. So God created the world as an act of freedom, and then God created the world as an act of love. The Bible teaches us over and over that God is love. And so a God who is love, just follow me, is a self-giving God. A God who is love gives himself, displays his glory, creates the world as an act of love because he's self-giving, because he is love. And it's the same thing. God wasn't lacking in love. He wasn't needing someone to love him in order to be complete. He created the world as an act of love because he is love, because he gives himself so that all of creation can recognize his greatness. That's what glory is. It's recognized greatness. And God creates the world as a loving and self-giving God so that all of creation can recognize the greatness of God and worship him in response to it. And this is the most loving thing God can do for us. Think about that for just a second. If we were created to worship him, we were created to recognize his greatness, then that's the best way that we can possibly live. The only way that we can ever be completely fulfilled and completely satisfied and completely content and find purpose is for us to worship God with everything that we have, worship him with our lives in response to 
his greatness. And so God gives us what's best for us. He gives us himself. He gives us his glory. He puts his glory on display so that creation can worship him and we can be fulfilled in that. So God creates us as an act of freedom. He didn't have to do this. He wanted to do this. He creates us as an act of love to display his glory to, so that we could recognize his greatness and we could love him in response to that. So that, and that's what we need to learn out of Genesis chapter 1. That's what creation teaches us, that there is a God that's so great, he spoke everything into existence. He's always existed, and he just spoke the world into existence. And there's a, there's a God who created this world so that we would recognize his greatness. There would be a creation that would recognize that and respond to that and be fulfilled in our response to that, that he created the world for his glory, to put his glory on display. Those are the truths. That's what we got to grab hold of in Genesis chapter 1. Now, here's the question. How does that affect my life, right? How does, that, how does this truth about creation come right back down to street level and become a part of how I approach life, how I see the world, how I interact with the world? This is what I would like to call creation in real life for us. And so let me just give us some observations about creation and what it looks like in real life. Number one. We recognize that creation sets the stage for the gospel. What, what creation, this story should do is it should allow us to recognize and embrace that this creation sets the stage for the gospel. Moses was writing to declare to the Israelites, God created the world. Worship him only. If there was a secondary purpose for what Moses was doing here, for why Moses was writing, I would say it was probably this, to set the stage for the gospel. Why? Because the whole Old Testament does that. All of our Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. All of our Old Testament is a shadow and a foreshadowing of the gospel story of what Jesus is going to accomplish. So all the stories that we're going to look at and all the characters and all the heroic figures and everything that's happening, even the genealogy list, they're all pointing us to the gospel. They're all pointing us to Jesus. They're all setting the stage for God to come in and do what only God can do. So everything is pointing to the gospel and creation is the foundation for that. There's ways that we have to understand and explain the gospel, right? As, as facts, as truths, as, as doctrine. The gospel essentially is Jesus's life, his death, Barrow's resurrection. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel is what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross for you and for me and, and all the effects of that. That's what the gospel is, that he took our place on the cross and when we put our faith in Jesus and him alone for our salvation, he exchanges the accounts and Jesus, his death was for our sin and he gives us his righteousness so that we can be made right with God. That is the gospel. And so we explain it with facts. We explain it with truth from the God's word. We explain it systematically. But there's another way to explain the gospel that is story. That the gospel can be told as a story. The gospel is a story. Our Bible is a story. This whole Bible is here because this is God revealing himself to us. And he does that through this amazing story that we can call the gospel. So let me, let me tell you what the outline of the gospel story is. It's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That is an outline for the gospel. That God created the world, and if you, you were listening when Janie was reading this, like he kept saying this a couple times, right? He saw that it was good. He declared that it was good. And so a fun, foundational belief about creation is that God created the world perfect. 
God created the world without any problems. There was no tornadoes, there was no earthquakes, there were no tsunamis, there was none of that, no volcanoes, none of that was happening. There's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no suffering. God created the world and it was good. It was perfect. And creation is the story that sets the stage for that. And then fall is what we did to mess it up. We rebelled. Adam and Eve, we're going to talk about it in a few weeks. They rebelled, right? They, they fell short of the glory of God. And because of that fall, and we've all followed in their footsteps, and we've all rebelled against God, it's called sin, then destruction and pain and suffering and all those things brought into the world and messed it up. They messed up the creation that God had made. But that wasn't the end of the story because God had a plan from the foundation of the world before he even created it, right? And that plan was redemption, that he was going to send his son to make all things right. He was going to send his son to bridge the gap. He was going to send his son to cover over all of our rebellion and our sin and bring us back to God. Redemption is a part of the gospel story. And now because of redemption, because of what Jesus did, we know that now God is going to eventually make all things new. He's going to restore this back to a new heaven, new earth, perfect again someday. And that's the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's a story that we can tell. You can, we need to give people the facts of the gospel, but we also need to remind people this is an amazing story. It's the best story ever told. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So we recognize that from the creation story, that it sets the stage. And then we see all this book of Genesis as pointing to the gospel. As we walk through the book of Genesis, that's, that's, that's the charge in front of us as pastors, is to show us every week how this story in Genesis is pointing us to Jesus, and it's pointing us to the gospel, and it's setting the stage for that. So we recognize that as we go. Creation in real life also means that we worship him as creator and reject worship of creation. The thing that Moses was calling them to do, hey, hey, remember, this is the God that we worship. He's not these false gods. He's not these idols. We worship the God who created everything, so we worship the creator God, and we don't worship creation. And the Israelites, I beat them up all ago, right? They did that all the time, and so do you and I. Most of you don't bow down to statues, but you value and you pursue and you treasure I do the same thing. We make things ultimate that aren't ultimate. We value things more than we value God. We pursue things more than we pursue God. And we do exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter one. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship the created thing instead of the creator. And the creation story should foundationally, fundamentally remind us that we are to worship him and only him and we reject the worship of creation, the created thing. Creation in real life. Creation in real life means that we prepare our children to encounter other worldviews. I want to say a couple things about it. I want to like camp out here for just a second. Two different aspects of this, I think. We prepare, we prepare our children to encounter other worldviews. If you're a parent, just so you know, the Bible teaches that you are the primary disciple maker in your child's life. We say that all the time here, but we, we, we say it because we mean it. Like That is... My job as a parent, my primary role in my kid's life is disciple maker. The, the disciple making agent in my child's life is me as dad and Tammy as mom. Like that's what the Bible teaches. So you as a parent, you're, you're responsible. You're ultimately responsible for making disciples, teaching your kids these foundational truths. And so we need to do that by preparing our children to encounter other worldviews that exist all outside in the public schools everywhere that are all there in front of them all the time. 
And so we need to prepare our children for that. We need to intentionally, systematically go through that. So we're going to give you resources so that you can learn. We're also going to give you resources that will help you train your children up in these foundational truths about a biblical worldview. Our children's ministry does an amazing job of that. And so here's, if that's your primary job and mine as a parent, here's what our church's job is to help you with that. Our church's job is to resource you and to train you and equip you and to come alongside you and to partner with you in that task. And that's what our children's ministry is doing. That's exactly what they're doing. So here's the other side of that. As parents, we have a primary responsibility to make disciples of our kids. But here's the way I said that in the the notes. We prepare our children to encounter other worldviews. And so there's a collective side of that as well. We are the family of God. This is the family that God has joined you with. You're in covenant relationship. And we collectively have a responsibility to prepare the next generation to encounter other worldviews with biblical truth. So why should you serve in children's ministry? Not out of duty or obligation, not because somebody made you feel like you should, like, because we're going to embrace this. Like we have a We have a responsibility here as the people of God to make sure the next generation knows the truth about who God is. And here's the deal. You can serve in our children's ministry to accomplish that task. You can serve in our children's ministry to partner with parents, partner with each other to help our children know these truths. Man, I got some great news for you if you're even thinking about that. There's a training the next two Sundays that you can get involved. It's just one of those coincidences, Kai. Like you say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know. I'm kind of scared of kids. I I get it. We all are. We all should be. Our children's ministry team, Stephanie and Stacia, they're going to be training us the next two weeks. All you got to do is show up a little bit early here, and they're going to feed you breakfast. So you're winning in every way. So Stephanie's right back here. Stephanie, wave. In case anybody doesn't know Stephanie, she'll be out at the connection table. It's time to sign up. It's time to say, hey, yeah, we want to prepare our children. We don't want to, be, we don't want to leave them hanging. Youth ministry is the same way. We have a responsibility for these teens, these students, to help them form a biblical worldview so that when they leave this flock and they go off to college and In college, the professors actually believe the stuff that they're teaching and they're shoving it down their throat. They will stand firm in their faith. That's one of the things I love about Nick Ganey and his view of this youth ministry is that's what we've talked about since day one of him taking over is how do we give these kids a biblical Christian worldview that will prepare them for the next thing? Guess what? Nick can't do that alone. We need parents, we need adults to come alongside and say, we're going to prepare our children to encounter other worldviews. We're going to take that responsibility seriously, and we're going to get involved. So here's how you can do that. Sign up for camp. Spend a week with these teenagers. I promise you, they won't be as intimidating. They'll be a lot more fun. And you'll be a lot more tired. But it'll be worth it. Go to camp with them and get to know them and begin to invest in them so that we can prepare them for everything they're going to face when they leave this comfort. And they will stand firm in their faith. Creation of real life means that we take that seriously. We prepare our children to encounter other worldviews. Now let me give you this. We declare his glory to the nations. Don't move away from creation without getting a missional focus on you. Like, 
we're going to take this story that God is the creator God and he's the only God to be worshiped and we're going to take that story to the nations. Psalm 96, we read four and five. Verse three says this, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. We can say that that's about the gospel because it really is. But in that day, it was really probably more about creation because the gospel hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't come. So we're going to declare to the nations, we're going to declare to our neighbor that there's a God who created everything and we should worship him because of that. So let's join him on mission. Pastor and author John Piper said it this way, and I love his wording. He said, God created the world to display his glory so that his people, you and me, might know, love, and show him. Know Love and show. That could become language at our church, that we're going to know him, we're going to love him, and we're going to show him to the world. We're going to declare his greatness, declare his glory, declare him as creator of the world. Let's be the church that knows God, that loves him, and shows him to a lost world that needs to know him too. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it it, it pulls us closer to you. It challenges us. It teaches us. We've, we need those reminders. We need, we, need this, we, we need this information, God, but we need this life change that comes as a result of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So God, help creation and what we believe about creation to inform our lives and make us a people that declare your glory to the nations. And thank you for that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.